human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I'm blessed to connect with executive coach, speaker, and self-professed awesome sauce alchemist, Rajkumari Niyogi. Founder of the I Restart Coaching Framework and the Biology of Belonging Boot Camp, Rajkumari uses her expertise in epigenetics and neurobiology to develop empathy and leadership and work culture at companies all over the world. In this conversation, we chat about bringing conscious practices into meetings, the importance of sitting with our own discomfort and the permission to mourn, the value in psychological dynamics and team culture, and the dark side of belonging. She says, we are brains, hearts, and bodies that need other brains, hearts, and bodies. Prepare to be taken to school in the best way possible in episode 23, The Body is Our Compass with Rajkumari Niyogi. So today on the What's Betwixt Us podcast, sponsored by Zany, the app for Slack that brings uh, empathy and authentic human connection into remote workspaces, I could not be more honored and thrilled to have Rajkumari Niyogi, who is an executive coach and speaker um, with an expertise in epigenetics and neurobiology, which she brings to team culture. Uh, she's the founder of the I Restart Coaching Framework and the Disruptive Diversity Boot Camp, and describes herself as an awesome sauce alchemist and a blend of techno babble and touchy feely, which sounds so perfect I can't even believe it. So. Raj Kumari, thank you so much for joining us on What's Betwixt Us. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here. <laughs> I, I want to ask, I want to go back to the beginning because you've developed so many amazing programs for work culture specifically. What was the impetus for you in your personal life to go full throttle head on into this, this empathy workspace? Wow, that's a really big question to dive on. Super awesome question. I think let's kind of start more recently and then work our way back. You know, at Facebook, I tell this story all the time. At Facebook, I, you know, both had the time of my life and felt totally excluded. Mm-hmm. There's this expression that people leave their managers. That was not the case for me. I loved and still love. Uh, my former boss, Stuart Crabb, we still maintain a relationship outside of uh, a professional dynamic. And, you know, I think being in an environment at Facebook was very confusing to have that level of support and engagement with my boss mm-hmm. while simultaneously feeling like I didn't belong, feeling excluded in in meeting after meeting, conversation after conversation that, you know, eventually I decided to quit. Um, because the exclusion piece just felt so bad. And I think that began my journey of really kind of exploring what the heck exclusion even is Mm -hmm. and how do you work with it? Um, I don't want to say fix it because (laughs) we aren't about fixing things. I think we we build companies and find solutions. We build products, we build services. 
Um, but we course correct when things aren't going the way that, that we like. Mm -hmm. And so I really kind of dove very deeply into this honestly emotional pain. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. And it took me on a journey that I am so blessed to have experienced that was very difficult for sure in exploring the definition of exclusion from an epigenetic and neurobiological lens, which I'll define in just a moment. Yes. <laughs> Big fancy words. <laughs> what I started to notice was that there's a neurochemical algorithm for exclusion. And I started to kind of look at the, you know, the stories of my childhood and the stories of my parents and the stories of my grandparents and Lo and behold, I found myself in the world of epigenetics and how those stories of exclusion, whatever they kind of endured or suffered through, titrated into my cellular biology. And this was a mind-blowing discovery. Rachel Yehuda, who I think uh, her research back in 2016 kind of blew my mind, where she was able to show that uh, the children of Holocaust survivors actually, actually exhibit similar or near identical uh, symptoms as those who endured and survived the concentration camps. And so when we see these similar um, or near identical symptoms of PTSD, mm -hmm. we start to really ask the question, does my childhood really impact my leadership style? <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> and and the question becomes, of course, of course it does. And not only your childhood experiences, but now, you know, there's so much research out there that says it's 200 years, 300 years, or 500 years that we carry this transgenerational traits, tragedies, and traumas in our cellular biology. Yeah. What's super awesome is that it can actually be reprogrammed because we are just a walking pharmacy. We are just a bundle of neurochemicals firing left and right and probably vertical and horizontal all day long, right? And so when we start to notice that we are showing up in ways that are less helpful, then we start to ask the question, what's driving that experience? What's driving my behavior? What's driving my thought process? What's driving um, the experiences that I'm having in the workplace dynamic that doesn't feel great, that feels exclusive like me at Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I started to do my own quote unquote childhood research by simply remembering you know, all of the moments where I felt excluded and I was horrified. I was like, oh my God, there's so many. Yeah. And it builds up. It does. And, you know, I'm so glad that you brought this up about the cellular level because I've done some studying on somatic experiencing, you know, as a technique to, to release trauma from the body. And yet that it, uh, we hold experiences that aren't even ours and we don't even know that. Uh, so, so you brought consciousness to this and you went back into your childhood and noticed the pattern. Of course, I imagine noticing the pattern is the first step toward being able to reprogram. Of course, and I will, I will also say that that's not the easiest step, very seriously, because when there's so much wounding, um, what the body does so brilliantly and how it's designed is it dissociates and compartmentalizes. So really there's a sleuthing, there's an archeology span <laughs> opportunity <laughs> um, for, for each of us to go back and, and, and really excavate that which is holding us back 
to the detriment of our own well-being that we may not even be aware of. Right. Right. I, you know, I noticed that you went to CIIS, um, which I'm actually applying for a master's in in, uh, somatic psychology through there now. And I'm wondering what you studied there, if it was related to this. So I I did study, I did get my degree uh, at CIIS back in 2010, and my master's was in transformative leadership development. Mm -hmm. What I will say is that I didn't have the best experience to be very forthcoming. Mm -hmm. However, there was a professor there who definitely sparked so much for me, uh, Urusa Fahim, and I think she's a phenomenal human. She really pushed me to some edges that I felt very uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, exploring, but she really invited me to, to delve into that, that journey for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's interesting, my grandmother actually passed away uh, during uh, my, my time at CIIS, which was very difficult for me because my grandmother basically raised me. She was my mother. She was my, my Indian grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, you know, I spent, I spent indoors in uh, a very Indian, East Indian environment and outdoors in a very, you know, Canadian environment. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to be in that dichotomous racial tension, to be quite frank. Mm-hmm. But it really gave me a lot of resources and, and, and capacities to navigate and fluidly kind of, you know, manage my, my own dynamics uh, interrelationally with others. Sure. And, you know, when she passed, my grandmother, you know, Urusa is, is uh, Pakistani. And, and what, what she did so beautifully is she asked me to really allow myself, give myself permission to mourn. Mm-hmm. I don't think we do that enough uh, in, in this country and in this culture. And that mourning really allowed me to step into a place of empathy for myself, to really kind of connect to myself. And, and there's a beautiful illustration of that mourning in the movie Inside Out. And for those of you who haven't seen it, please go I see love it. it. It's so good. <laughs> um, and I will just share that there's a pivotal moment where the, where the entire movie shifts. And, and there's, a, there's a scene between a character called Sadness and another character called Bing Bong. And Bing Bong is very sad because he lost something. And a third character named Joy is you know, trying to get her needs met. She's like, we need to go, 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 we need to go. And she's really like, how can I make this guy make me do, you know, do what I need him to do? Mm. As so many of us do in the workplace, right? Um, and, then, and then Sadness, the character Sadness steps in and, and she empathizes with Bing Bong. And Bing Bong just starts to connect with himself and feel that resonance and that support from this character called Sadness. And he releases, he gets to speak about his emotion. He gets to mourn what he lost. Mm-hmm. And as he processes, and of course, we're only about a 90 minute film, so he processes pretty, qu- process pretty quickly. <laughs> I think he processes in two seconds. <laughs> Woo-hoo, go Bing Bong. Uh, right? He's like, okay, let's go do what we need to do. And in this moment, the character Joy, who's all about fixing and solving, fixing and solving, fixing and solving, for the first time sees the value in empathizing and being present with the difficulties, right? And I think this is such an opportunity for us in the workplace to really become masterful at being able to sit with our own discomfort in the moment while being gracious and present in the conversation. And I think that is, that is really an opportunity for, for, for the world, the corporate world at large. 
I would agree. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a conversation that's definitely growing a lot and well, but I don't want to reroute you because I already rerouted you from what you were explaining. And you were going to go back into talking about epigenetics and neurobiology, what those, what those are and how they're relevant here in your work. Yeah. Thank you for tracking so beautifully. So <laughs> epigenetics is really, there's, there's two, twofold definition here. Uh, the first is that the stresses in your environment are impacting the way that your genetics is expressing themselves. There's a bunch of stuff now online, a ton of stuff, and a great place to start might be Moshe Seif's uh, videos. He also has a really interesting uh, TED talk. He's an epigeneticist. Um, and then the second piece is of epigenetics is that we do carry the traits and tragedies and traumas transgenerationally uh, in our cellular biology, and that comes from Rachel Yehuda's Yehuda's work. Mm -hmm. and, and so epigenetics is really kind of locating, as I mentioned before, those stories of exclusion, because as we feel excluded, our system kind of moves into a stress response. Uh, and sometimes we'll um, secrete adrenaline to process that stress response. Uh, but more often, and especially if it's compounded generationally, and depending upon the story, there's a cortisol the cortisol release, and that can be incredibly toxic over time um, if we stay in a job with a boss that we don't like or a team that's very difficult to work with, or we find ourselves being interrupted or excluded or bullied in the workplace. And, and so our system is reacting to that. And that's why when we leave that environment that was not as healthy as we would have appreciated, it takes time for our body to reacclimate. Um, because it's looking for those danger cues. It's looking for those right. life-threatening cues and it's not finding it. So it has to kind of reassess and go, oh, I'm not at my old job. I'm not with my old boss. Ah, okay. And, and that's the opportunity um, to start to really kind of shift the way our genes um, give us information, right? that, that epigenetic messaging, if you will. And the neurobiology piece is simply how our nervous system kind of um, messages us constantly when we feel stressed, upset, frustrated, anxious, worried, hopeless, helpless, and even curious and engaged mm -hmm. and really excited and calm and present. So the neurobiology is really our feelings that we feel are constantly taking us back. They're the breadcrumbs to our needs. So when our needs are transgressed upon, whether that's the need for respect, the need for trust, collaboration, productivity, reliability, whatever those needs are for you as an individual, when they are not met, the system kind of alerts the body, uh-oh, something's going on that's not good, let's be careful, right? And then we kind of move into like the technical term is an activated state. So if we start to get stressed, maybe we turn more toward a, a fight stance of impatience or frustration and annoyance, maybe a flight stance of worry or anxiety or, or kind of um, concern, right? And if this is an ongoing experience, like I have my job and I've been here for three years and every Monday at nine, I have to go to this meeting with my exec team and there's this person I don't like, mm -hmm. I might start to feel disengaged, dissociated, helpless, hopeless, stuck, confused, and that's the freeze state, right? So so our feelings are so essential in kind of navigating our own bodies so that we can learn to connect and be in relationship with, but more importantly, self-regulate in times of conflict. Yeah, the body is, the body keeps the score. The body knows 
what's going on and is yeah. giving us messages. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom in the body. And um, I know you're referencing Bessel van der Kolk's work when you said that. And, you know, I think we need to start to really look through the lens of an instrument. The body is really an instrument. Um, it's our compass on this planet. So, some of us are so disconnected from our bodies because we've experienced so much strife. The body is designed to feel. And, and when the feelings have just not felt good for so long, gosh, why would we want to keep feeling those not good feelings, right? We want to disconnect. But the opportunity is to kind of resolve and, and find resolution in whatever transgressions occurred, whether in our lifetime or you know, in an epigenetic transgenerational uh, story in order for us to kind of come back to it a really safe and engaged and high-performing state. Mm -hmm. Which is available, it's available to everyone. So even if you're feeling stuck, there is a way out of it, if you're willing to investigate. There is. <laughs> I'm asking because I'm like, please tell me there is. <laughs> so the short answer is absolutely there is. The complexity arises because we're human. Right. And one of the things that plays, I think, a significant part in that complexity is you know, many companies talk about creating cultures of belonging, but so few companies understand that there's actually a dark side of belonging. And it is that, that dark side of belonging that creates the challenge in, in moving through that wounding. And, and let me kind of give an example about what that might look like. So let's say you grow up in a family that uh, really cherishes uh, donuts, right? And you become, uh, you grow up in this family of donuts, right? So everything is about donuts. And you go off into the world and now you're kind of exposed to new and exciting things. And all of a sudden you meet people eating cupcakes and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> there are cup, what are these things? Right? And they're amazing. They're like, there's chocolate cupcake and strawberry cupcake. And <laughs> you cannot wait to share this new discovery with your family. And so you bring it back home and there's just this rage. What are you doing? That's not how we do this in this family. We are a family of donuts. How dare you? Mm -hmm. And that becomes a very difficult moment for that individual who just discovered cupcakes, but grew up in a family of donuts. How do I reconcile this? Mm -hmm. How do I start to really explore and enjoy cupcakes while feeling like I belong with my family? Do I hide the fact that I like cupcakes? Do I start to hate cupcakes all of a sudden? Do I avoid cupcake stores, right? What do, what do I do? Do I just say, you know, screw you family, I'm gonna go get cupcakes. <laughs> I never liked donuts anyway. <laughs> right? This becomes an incredible dilemma for the individual. And that's why when we look at systems of family, systems of family of origin, right? We have to really sort for the places where the family has created structures of belonging embedded with it exclusion because mm -hmm. that's where that's where the cortisol is that's where the limitations are that's where the lack of permission is given mm -hmm. can't go get cupcakes because i won't be loved by dad it reminds me of a discussion of spiral dynamics which i've been looking into recently of you know there's there's tribal there's 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 i and then there's we the tribe and then you zoom out and then there's everyone else and so I think what you're discussing is this, this difficult dissonance that happens when you step outside your tribe 
discover newer perspectives, you still want to feel a part of your tribe and not offend or betray them. But there's this importance of having this wider perspective in order to survive and grow and expand in the world. Exactly. And for those of us who uh, were remiss in experiencing a sense of belonging, a sense of safety, a sense of security, as I was growing up in my family, then we look to the corporate world or to any organization, uh, to any team to provide that safety, to provide that sense of belonging. And, and we kind of conflate belonging in our family uh, with uh, belonging in, 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 in an organization or a team structure, team culture. The only place that one belongs permanently is in the family, um, but we do have access to temporary belonging within organizations. But we have to understand that. Um, and, and so part of what is really an area for growth, I think for so many of us, is where are we carrying all this baggage of exclusion where we're in essence demanding a sense of belonging that we didn't get in our families uh, that we're wanting in our in our team dynamic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this causes a problem for the team because the team isn't designed to do that. The team is designed to build product and services right. with a culture of safety, hopefully. Right, right. And I want to get to you know what you launched uh, after leaving Facebook, and now you've worked with so many different companies with this with this information. Would you mind talking about iRestart and what it is and what it brings? Well, I have no idea what I restart is and what it is and what it brings, but <laughs> what I do know is that I offer these boot camps and we've now since changed the name, need to update that. It's actually uh, the Biology of Belonging Boot Camps. And it's a six week uh, experience where um, anyone, is, anyone from the public around the world is, is, is welcome to attend and to really explore their own family stories that may have caused strife in some way for them and to avail tools that will allow them to more self-connect and self-align. You talk about um, reprogramming and supposing you are, you're in a work environment and you're learning about yourself and you're learning that you're having this cortisol release, this adrenaline release. Do you have any recommended practices, and I know it's, it's a long, slow process of healing, right? That involves lots of therapy. And, and, and I, I mean, like for within the moment, do you have any recommendations for people who are recognizing this in themselves, in their work culture to feel safer in the moment? Yeah, such a great question. You know, the first thing is to breathe. Uh, Richie Bostock, who's the author of Exhale, talks about how respiration is the single most important chemical reaction the body does every moment of the day. So breathing is actually important. The longer the exhale, the more acetylcholine is secreted, which communicates safety uh, to the system. So inviting people to breathe in meetings, this has become kind of a running joke with my clients that they pay me all this money to teach them to breathe. <laughs> um, but the reality is it's a very powerful tool. So truly inviting a conscious breath. Um, I also, you know, need to practice breathing more often. I know that when I'm you know, in front of a client and they ask me very direct questions, how do I solve for this? I know I stop breathing and try yeah. to like turn my brain on so I can show up smart. <laughs> but, but really it's a balance. It's, it's truly, truly a balance. So that's thing one. Thing two is 
if you really want to explore whatever's holding you back, maybe you have insecurities, maybe you have high anxiety, maybe you have vulnerability aversion, whatever it is for you, whatever it is the flavor that drives your leadership style. There's a book by Sarah Payton, P-E-Y-T-O-N, called Your Resonant Self. And it's such a beautiful journey towards yourself. She's all about uh, the resonant self-witness or the resonant witness, I think it is. And you know, what, what is missing in organizations generally worldwide is a sense of support, the sense of safety in that support, that I can really rely on you, that I can really come forward and, and share what's going on with me authentically, you know, transparently, and with, um, with open-heartedness. Mm-hmm. And you know, we are brains that need other brains. We yes. are hearts that need other hearts. We are bodies that need other bodies. And in those, you know, heart, brain, body moments, we literally need alignment. That that person is showing up in alignment for me to vet that level of authenticity so that I can show up and share what's so I can have my bing bong moment. Right. right? <laughs> and, and so as we start to develop these new ways of relating, that's going to shift team culture so dramatically and prioritize empathy and, and, and psychological safety and, and ultimately belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, we can easily motivate teams through fear and we can easily motivate th- teams through curiosity, both are very, very profitable. <laughs> Absolutely, no doubt. I can start to list many companies that motivate through fear and are incredibly successful. Yeah. What they're not noticing, perhaps, is that the cost of attrition, mm-hmm. the cost of m- medical insurance, the cost of a turnover, the cost of litigation, the cost of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Time off. I, I, I once had a CEO ask me, we were, we were about to sit down for a full day of leadership training and I hadn't, I hadn't met the CEO yet. So we had an hour slotted before our day began and the CEO sits down and we're like, hey, nice to meet you. So excited to be here kind of a thing. And within the first 90 seconds of our niceties being done, the CEO asked me, which was pretty incredible. And I would say, you know, kudos to you for having the courage to ask that question. What's the point of me being nice to my employees? Wow. <laughs> so I had to gather myself. <laughs> you do know we're here for a full day of leadership training on trust, right? <laughs> you didn't miss that memo, right? So, so how I responded was, you know, every single time that you're mean to someone or interrupt them or humiliate them in some way, you're actually shutting down the parts of their brain that's making you money. Right. Now this CEO paused, looked down, looked back up at me and said, okay, so what do I do? Which was hilarious to me because I'm like, well, that's why we have the full day training. (laughs) It was really, it really spoke volumes because this CEO had just gotten 97 million in funding. Wow. So we really have to meet and message our audience where they are. We really do. And being able to articulate the value in creating psychologically safe team dynamics and team culture 
is so essential because when you're motivating from fear, what's most likely happening is all the dollars that you're leaving on the table that looks like the following. Innovation, creativity, solutions, brainstorming, collaboration, productivity. You might be a really successful company motivating through fear. Imagine what you could be motivating through trust. Yeah, that's beautifully said. That's beautifully said. I'm, I'm curious about that CEO by the end of that day, if you saw a transformation there. No, sadly. In fact, what was really kind of sweet, and I say this in, in, in air quotes, was as we were coming to the end of the day, I think we had about 45 minutes before the close of day, the team, I think there were nine executives, got into a huge fight in front of me. Oh, wow. <laughs> about the content? No, about an issue that they couldn't solve for. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, the whole thing devolved into childish behavior. Wow. Right in front of me. And this went on for 45 minutes. So we're about to end, right? But it, they continued. I think we went out for, for an hour, actually. And I just sat back and like, well, this is not bad for me to do this, right? This is not what I'm here for. And I don't mean a coach, but that's additional. <laughs> that's actually- <laughs> and at one point, the COO got really frustrated and turned to me and said, do you see what's happening here? And I said, I do. And I gave them some harsh, some harsh feedback. Mm-hmm. And everyone got really quiet. And I had to push my flight out by two hours because they decided to show up and actually work through it in a, in a completely conflict through courage manner. Like they, they had some hard conversations for the next two hours. It was amazing. Wow. It was really amazing. But it was the moment of self-reflection that I, I made my commentary that was very forthcoming that invited them to step into a different way. Yeah. Wow. Which, which comes back to your very first comment, right? Self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So key in developing cultures of safety and belonging. Have you found during the course of this pandemic more conversations arising about this, that there's been more space for it? Or have you seen a shift in corporate culture just within this pandemic? This is such a controversial question. (laughs) (laughs) So I I will say this. I think that under the duress of our multitudinal situations that we are compounded to face on a daily basis, we are actually invited, unbeknownst, you know, even even unwillingly, we are still invited to notice our feelings. And this has given rise to an incredible opportunity to process through, to gain support, to find community, and to really get in touch with self. Mm -hmm. I think so many people who are living alone have an opportunity to do that. And I think so many people who are not living alone are really kind of exploring the dynamic with their partner. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing everything from, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I picked this person in my life. Now we've become even closer. And I, I, it's so great to be able to spend all of this time for over a year with this person to you know, the antithesis of that for sure. And truly, truly giving kind of a, a wide 
mandated, if you will, opportunity to really get in touch and connect with self. Really, it's 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 such a paradoxical experience because I live alone and believe me, you know, we're coming up on a year since I've, you know, hugged anybody. And uh, uh, March 16th was last time I was in a restaurant, March 16th, 2020, right? So, and it's uh, February, what is it, 12th? Yeah. <laughs> so just just huge opportunities, I think. And, and, and really, really kind of inviting companies and teams to think about how can I provide resources? How can I provide support? How can I give this extra layer of, of foundation to my teams who have done so much in the last, you know, 12, 16 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so I, you know, was serving tables. I served tables for, for nine years and I, I actually really enjoy the work and, you know, I come from a performance and background and I'm a comedian and an actor and an extrovert and having had an almost an entire year of not doing that work, the I see within myself the consequences psychologically and you know emotionally of not being able to engage. And I wonder if you have thoughts on, you know, what the textbooks, what the sociology and psychology textbooks will say about this era and you know the the profound effect it's having on people uh, emotionally. I have a lot of thought on that, and I, again, want to be a little more reserved in my sharing of my thoughts. What I will say is, you know, this, the hope, the hope that I have is that when it's safe to get out into the world and connect with people at a closer proximity, that we will value connection, that we will value hugs, that we will value kindness and care in ways that we have not for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I sometimes among my artist friends, we talk about how when we can finally all be out in the world, it's just going to be like a pig pile of hugging in the streets or a renaissance, you know, like the renaissance happened after the plague. I do hope for that. <laughs> with boundaries. <laughs> right, with boundaries, with consent. All with consent, always with consent. But yeah, I think that's going to be, for me, my hope is that there will just be an outpouring of love mm-hmm. based on the longing that has transpired for so long. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm wondering uh, if you have any uh, personal stories, because I don't, I want to make sure that you're able to share personal stories of moments where you've experienced empathy or witnessed empathy that were profound anywhere in your career, whether as a coach or when you were actually in, you know, working within a company? Well, I don't know how long this podcast is. How long are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, are you, you going to have to narrow it down a little bit because I experience empathy all the time. And I have to say that I am incredibly blessed and humbled by um, people finding value in our connection. And I'm told so often how grateful our time was together. So for me, that's that's empathy. And I, I really am here to, uh, to be in service of. Um, my language of love is PowerPoint presentations. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm always in the process of building a PowerPoint deck in order to express myself. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so yeah, if you have a more particular or, you know, kind of, specific question. I guess 
I mean, you did just answer it. Like I, I just think about moments, you know, moments in which people, in which you were personally moved, you know, that, that rise above that, like that stick out in your mind or moments where you have witnessed somebody go uh, above and beyond to hold somebody with empathy. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that question like a politician and not answer it. I'm going to actually talk about something else. Okay. (laughs) I, I think that the advice I would give to everyone out there is truly have awareness about how you're showing up because you don't know the impact that you're having in the moment. I have so many stories where people will come back six months, a year, five years, 10 years later and say, that thing that you said, which I have no recollection of, mm-hmm. that thing that you said, that really moved me. And now I've started this multi-million dollar company because of it. Right. I have that all the time. And in fact, I remember very specifically when I was a technologist, this was like 50 million lifetimes ago when I was a technologist (laughs) and I was uh, coaching this guy from Brazil, not coaching, training, sorry, training this guy from Brazil in software. Mm -hmm. And it was a very complex software. This was back in the day when I was in the DVD world and all about, you know, technology and compression, uh, video compression. Feels like for us. And uh, I trained this guy, he come, he literally flies from Brazil, I can't remember his city. We sit down for three days, I train him, we have a great time, whatever, he leaves, never hear from him again, mm-hmm. except like five or seven years later, I get a LinkedIn message like, hey, just wanna thank you so much for that training and how you were so kind. He didn't speak English very well, actually. Mm-hmm. So, so, so connecting and empathizing and relating was, you know, required some effort. Right. And he said, thank you so much. You know, I learned so much and you were so, you know, this thing and that thing with me. And he was working for Sony Pictures Plaza, you know, like as a DVD author. And I think you don't actually know how your words are landing with people. Mm -hmm. And to Maya Angelou's point, people remember how they feel after they've connected. Yes. So prioritize dignity, respect, and kindness as you are making your requests and demands to get stuff done. Yeah, because those moments also lodge in our brains and in our bodies. Well, before we bring this to a close, I I like to end all of my podcasts by uh, taking one of the questions from the Zany app, which is basically like a weekly question on Slack so that teams can connect on something that has nothing to do with work and talk about it in a discussion channel. And then every week they get a new question. So I'm going to ask you a question from the Zany app, which is, if you could off-road anywhere in the world, where would it be? New Zealand. Wow, so fast. (laughs) Have you been everywhere already? Uh, No, not yet, for sure. I think my sister has been like, three times as many more countries than I have. So, and I think I've been to a lot. So jealousy there, I'll just, I'll just admit that. <laughs> but um, I spent a month and just a little over a month and a half in, uh, in the North Island. And I thought it was gorgeous. And I was told that the South Islands were, sorry to all the North Islanders, but the <laughs> South Islanders were to be. And I, I will only agree because I haven't been. And because there's a three-star Michelin restaurant there by, uh, what is her name, Monique? Uh, oh, I can't remember her last name. 
Fiso, I think it is. And so I really want to go. I really want to go to that restaurant. So that's my motive. I see Along with the walking and off-roading. <laughs> it's definitely in your future. As soon as we can travel safely, it's happening. It's happening. Absolutely. Um, well, Rajkumari, where can people find you and learn more about what you do? Yes. Well, you're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn, for sure, Rajkumari Niyogi. Um, and you're welcome to visit my website at rajkumariniyogi.com. Sign up for the newsletter and get epigenetic tips on you. Amazing. This has been such a delight and you are so well-spoken. I have to say I was really nervous for this because you're just incredible and you just have so much in your brain that's useful. Yeah. PowerPoint slides, like I said, that's how I get it out. <laughs> in the morning, wait, what happened in the Capitol? <laughs> Let me process through PowerPoint. <laughs> awesome. Rajkumar Niyogi, thank you so much for joining us on What's Betwixt Us. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to episode 23 of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. To find out more about Rajkumari and her life-changing coaching programs, visit rajkumariniyogi.com. That's R-A-J-K-U-M-A-R-I-N-E-O-G-Y.com. She's also got a generous, wildly positive presence on LinkedIn. I recommend finding her there, too. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E dot A-P-P. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.